Luke chapter 14. We are going to try and make it through the entire chapter, so that will be down to verse 35 of chapter 14. And the title of this study is The Terms of Discipleship. So what does it mean to follow Christ? Jesus has been dealing with people who thought they were right with God, but were not right with God. And that we're going to see even a little bit more of that as we make our way through the opening verses here um, of chapter 14. The other thing that we're going to see is that he's going to very clearly say, this is what it means to be my disciple. Boy, we better listen up. We better listen up and hear what he has to say. And, I, and just right where you are, even send up that prayer. Lord, I want to hear what you had to say. If I somewhere along the way have come up with a different idea and plan of what discipleship means, other than what you said, Lord, it meant, may you speak to me and correct me. The problem is, is once we get dug in in our traditions and our ways, man, it's hard to break it. We're going to see it. Jesus in their midst can't even break the traditions of the Pharisees. That's scary, isn't it? To think about you could have God incarnate, the word in the flesh, and, and he's telling you the way it is, and you're like, no, I don't think so. Pretty scary stuff. And so how we want to keep our hearts soft and humble. So we're going to talk tonight about some humility. We're going to talk about the need to respond to Jesus without excuses and what the true cost of discipleship is. So let's begin at verses 1 through 6 where we see Traditions versus the word. Now it happened as he went into the house of one of the rulers of the Pharisees to eat bread on the Sabbath, that they watched him closely. And behold, there was a certain man before him who had dropsy. So he had this ailment. And Jesus answering spoke to the lawyers and Pharisees saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? They, they have their opinion, but look at this. They kept silent. Cowards, chickens. You know, they, they, they're unwilling to even engage him in a conversation. And he took him and healed him and let him go. Then he answered them saying, Which of you having a donkey or an ox that has fallen into a pit will not immediately pull him out on the Sabbath day? And they could not answer him regarding these things. So the Pharisees watched him closely, the end of verse 1, because they are so in tune with the, who Jesus is and the way that he works and the way that he moves. Now, they don't agree with it. They think it's wrong, but they know that Jesus is so predictable that if we bring somebody in front of him who has a need, he's going to meet the need. And let's invite him over to your house, and then we'll also make certain that this guy with dropsy comes in, and we know that he's going to heal him because he just can't help himself. Don't you love it that Jesus is that predictable for good, for doing the right thing? Do you, are you convinced? Are you that convinced? Is Troy that convinced that Jesus is that for doing good in my life? I mean, here they are. These are the Pharisees and the lawyers. They don't even like him. They want to kill him. And yet they do know this about him. When he has a chance to do kindness or show love towards somebody, he's going to do that. Hopefully we understand at least that, right? That we can expect every single time that Jesus shows up that if there's a need, he's going to meet it. He's going to touch a person's life. He's going to minister to their heart. In this case, it works out to be a healing and he does it on the Sabbath. Now remember, he already did this. He told the man with the withered hand to stretch it out. And um, it was there on the Sabbath in the synagogue. And they lost their minds. And Jesus rebuked them and said, wow, you guys are just off. How can you, how can you think like this? And so there was that, that encounter they had already had. So they know that he's not afraid of the conflict. And he has certainly got a soft spot in his heart for those that are in need. You know, especially, I mean, the text doesn't say it, okay? It does not say that he was a plant within there. So I'm, I'm going to say that there's, I think, one of two options. One, they made certain the guy with the need was there because they knew what Jesus was going to do. Or secondly, as we've talked about before, when you would have a, 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 you know, a dinner at your house in these small little villages, you know, the thing about... Um, 
going over to Israel, when you go, especially in the, the Galilee region, when you're there and you'll, you go into these little villages, they are tiny. I mean, you, you think that Jesus is going to this, some big-time city. He did go to Jerusalem, but these are just little, I mean, little dots. You can go up on one hill that overlooks Galilee, and you can see the majority of where Jesus traveled and what he did and what he taught and all the miracles that happened with just like one glance. You don't have to go left or right. Just look right there. You can see it all. These little tiny towns. So in these towns, when a honored guest came in and it was a big deal and a big meal was happening, what would happen is people from within the city would come and they would sit along the edges of the, of the, where the dinner was. Now remember, uh, it would be very common for them to have reclined at the table, right? So they're reclining. Jesus' feet are going out this way, everybody else's feet. That's why the woman, who was a notable sinner, could walk up to him and anoint his feet with um, oil and could wipe his feet. She wasn't going under the table. But, so they would be like this. So they had that, that Roman triclinium table. And then along the walls, people would stand and they would just watch what happened. And, um, you know, there usually was some doggy bags on the way out, so that was helpful too. So people would come to this event. So either he's a plant, and they say, watch what happens when he comes, or the guy just says, I've got to come in. I've got to get near to Jesus. But either, either way, they're watching him closely. And so Jesus heals them. He asks them the question, I mean, it's not a hard question, can you heal on the Sabbath, yes or no? We're not going to answer that question. Because if we tell you what we believe, we're going to look like terrible people. Yeah, that's right. That's, that's probably a really good indication that you have the wrong view of, of Scripture and of the Lord. So he went, goes on and decides that he is going to heal anyways. Um, and remember what Jesus had said, that, that the Sabbath was made for Man, in other words, to be a blessing to man, and man wasn't made to keep some rituals and, and commandments of the Sabbath. God looks at man and says, Wow, you guys work hard. You need a break. So I'm going to get, make certain that you have a day in which you rest. It was meant to be a blessing to him. The Sabbath was not meant to be a difficult thing, but they had add, added so many sub rules to the idea that you should rest on the Sabbath that it became. A terrible burden that nobody could carry. And so it had totally flipped what the Lord wanted. Somewhere along the way, the religious leaders stopped using the word of God as a guide and esteemed their own traditions and teachings above the revealed word. Now, I don't mean this like, um, even in an indirect sense. I, I mean that statement in the most direct sense. They would say things like, the, our oral tradition and the, 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 the tradition of the, the commentators of their day um, was more perfect than the Word of God. That this is the mentality that they had. As they thought their view and the traditions that had been handed down through the centuries about the Word of God was more important than the Word of God and that even God himself could not correct it. Well, here's God himself. And you can see what's going on. I mean, they had it baked in that this is so right and this is so true that even, even God couldn't change this. And so there they are, esteeming their traditions that you cannot heal on the Sabbath. You know, this is not only a first century Jewish problem. It's a people problem. Down through the ages and even to our current hour, there are those that come and they begin to look at the Word of God, and they begin to build what feels right to them around it. And they set up its own, their own traditions, their own teachings, their own dogma. And in, in many times, it begins to push the Lord out, and it begins to change the very things that the Lord has said in His Word. What a danger it is when we become more interested in our form, traditions, culture... The, the real view of the day, then we do what the Word of God has to say. 
What do we do? How do we prevent ourselves from ending up in this place? we got to rediscover the beauty of God's Word each and every day in our hearts and our lives. Every day, let the Word of God touch you. Every day, be comforted. Every day, allow the Word of God to bring conviction into your heart and your life. Keep a close relationship with the Word of God so that it doesn't become something that's set aside. And meanwhile, you have all kinds of other information that's coming into your your thoughts, your mind. I mean, there has never been a generation in the history of the world that has more information coming at us, more worldview, more um, obscure thoughts, more ungodly thoughts than, than we have right now. I mean, it's just, it's all the time. It's all the time, and you've got to just stop it. But if, if we have that flood of information coming in, and we are not choosing to open up the Word of God and the encounter with it, we should be put on alert because it, there's a delusion that's going to take place in your thinking and in your heart. And we see this happening when, when the popular views of the day are being ignored over what the Bible has taught and what the church has believed for 2,000 years. And now somebody that, you know, got a new phone and figured out how to, you know, make a web page is now an expert Never spent a second, you know, studying um, theology or any of the languages, and yet they're experts on on what we should believe in and teach, and they're leading people away. I mean, I you know I've listened to some of the things that um, that people are saying that are so popular, and they're like, well, you know, it, it means this and it means that, and it's like you are so wrong. You're not even like in the ballpark of being close to being right, but you know, it's not, it goes unchallenged. It's like, whoa, that's. They're an expert. This is what they're saying. Well, here's a bunch of experts and said you can't heal on the Sabbath. Well, they're wrong. They're wrong. And we need to be mindful of this. So this can come in the form of legalistic, pharisaical teaching, no healing, or it can come in the form of liberal, self-indulgent trends of the day. They say, oh, no, no, those, those things that you read in the Word of God that tells us how we should live and what our character should look like. You know, those aren't right. Those aren't right. It's, it's, it's now this. This is now morality. This is now justice. This is now truth. This is now loving. This is now kindness. And they totally redefine it. But they cling to it like it's the Word of God. And if you, if you, if you don't think that's true, cross them on it. Try and bring out what the Word of God has said for the last 2,000 years in the New Testament, go back further than that in the Old Testament, tell them what the Word of God has to say and tell them that you cling to these truths because this is what the teaching of God is. Oh, you'll see people that are entrenched in their doctrine that will get angry because they have a new standard of holiness. They've written it and they're, you know, they're writing it as we speak. And if you don't align with that standard of holiness, you know what they want to do? They want you to be done with. They won't want to hear you. They want to silence you. They don't want you to have a chance to ever speak again. And that's what we see going on in our world today. So, you know, we can read this and say, wow, these, you know, these Pharisees, what's wrong with them? It's going on like this very second. Some of you, you're dealing with this in your own homes. You're dealing this with, the, with your, your kids. You're dealing with your spouse. You're dealing with a family member. You know this is the thing where the traditions and the dogma and the trends of the day become more important than what the Word of God has to say. What does the Bible say? That's a good question. And that's your answer for doctrine and for life and for salvation. So traditions versus the word. Now we think of tradition, we think of something old, we think of something, you know, that's kind of ancient and, you know, been passed down and it's probably dusty and no. Traditions can be rather new and they can cling to them even over the word of God. Verses 7 through 11. So they're at a meal. He challenges them he says, hey, you know, the law allows you to go get your donkey, your oxen out of the pit, but you won't allow this man, you won't allow this man to be raised up. What's wrong with you? In verse 7 through 11, he teaches about not exalting yourself. So he told a parable to those who were invited when he noted how they chose the best places, saying to them, when you are invited by anyone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in the best place. 
lest one more honorable than you be invited by him. And he who invited you and him come and say to you, give place to this man. And then you begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit down in the lowest place so that when you're in, when he who invited you comes, he may say to you, friend, go up higher. Then you will have glory in the presence of those who sit at the table with you. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus was watching them closely as they came in. They're watching him, but guess what? He's watching them. And he's also watching us. Now, does that comfort you or does that trouble you? I guess it depends on how you're living, right? Because <laughs> if you're living right and you're living for Jesus, you're like, oh man, I hope he's watching. I hope what, he's watching the things that I'm doing, the way that I'm seeking his kingdom, the way that I'm serving, the way that I'm, I'm following. I hope he's watching that. I hope he sees that. He does. And, you know, seven times to seven churches, I think it's seven times, to the seven churches there in the book of Revelation, he says, I know your works. What's that? I'm watching you. Now that can be, again, intimidating. It's like, oh no. Or you can think, all right. Hopefully it's an all right. But he is watching and he is noting not just these Pharisees, but he's watching all of us closely. So he gave a parable here that would address the pride in their life, which would um, lead eventually to a complete humbling before God. So he's giving them some practical instruction about how to go and be a, uh, you know, a, a reasonable dinner guest. But that's really just touching the surface of the moment. They, these were men that wanted to be honored. They wanted to be acknowledged. And they were always trying to lift themselves up, even with the Lord there in this room. And um, you know they're taking the higher seat. Obviously, somebody did. There Jesus is. Again, God in the flesh, the Son of God, and somebody's chosen the higher seat. You can be certain he didn't choose the highest seat. But boy, what should have they done? They should have, well, wait a minute here. Jesus, you come sit up here. Again, that sense of understanding who, is, who he is and the place that he should have. But in, instead, they're, they're going through this. He says, this is going to turn out to be really an embarrassing experience for you someday. But he's looking at how they are so full of pride and unwilling um, to hear what anybody else has to say, not what he has to say. And so one day, their pride is going to keep them even from having a good standing with God in heaven. You know, until we are broken and humbled before God, realizing that we are in desperate need of mercy and forgiveness, we can never have a part in the kingdom of God. The first experience a person has when they come to God is to be broken. To have a terrible awareness of their sinfulness and God's holiness. And once you have that experience, now the Lord can lift you up and he can bless you. But not for these guys. That's not what was going on. Verses 12 through 14. Then he also said to him who invited him. So he spoke to the dinner guests. Now he's going to speak to the host. When you give a dinner or a supper, do not ask your friends, your brothers, your relatives, nor rich neighbors, lest they also invite you back and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you shall be repaid at the resurrection of the just. So meals were a super important part of the social rituals of the day. You could see there were special seats that you would go and sit at. And then dinners would usually happen according to people that were all in the same social class. And so Jesus wants to disrupt this. Why don't you invite people that are not part of your normal circle of friends? Your normal circle of acquaintances, those that you would normally socially interact with. He says, go and find those that are down and out. Go and find those that are in a desperate situation and invite them to come and be a part of it. So he's really, he's kind of tapping upon the same issue of pride um, by, that the, this was so common among the dinner hosts. They wanted to invite people so they could be invited. And it was not to show kindness and hospitality. It was to get something in return. And he says, now listen, 
Those that are a part of the resurrection, they're going to be rewarded by this. They're going to be acknowledged. They're going to be repaid for what they have done. And you know what Jesus is calling them and therefore us to do and to associate with the lowly for those that are the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind. Um, what he is saying, he's already done for us. He's already done that. He's already invited us to his dinner table. You know, he's already invited us to the table of the Lord to eat of his body and to, to drink of his blood. We celebrate communion. But there's going to come a, a day when we sit down at the marriage supper of the Lamb and we're going to eat with him. And who are we? Who are we that we've been invited? And, and he's asking us to do the same. So if he being... God has invited us to sit down with the mill with him, then how low do we really, how much lower do we go? I mean, I mean, here's God down to us, and if we go from us, and if we're going to have that social strata that we think of, I mean, you're just, can you even measure it? Comparing the distance between us and the Lord. We've gone so far up. The Lord has invited us to be with him. And so it's a good Opportunity, real practical lesson for us just to stop and ask who are the people that we're associating with? Is it only those people that can give back to us? Is it only those people that can, you know, help us along the way? Hopefully, what we're doing is that we are where our eyes are open to the needs of all people. All people. Whether they, they are the people in you know, that same uh, circle of friends or it's people that are on another circle of friends or it's the people that, you know, we, you wouldn't normally associate with. This is what we should be doing. We should be showing kindness to them. You want to know how you deal with the race issue is you show kindness to all people. This is not difficult. <laughs> We've been told to love all people. So love the, the person that's different than you. That doesn't look exactly like you. That has a different um, taste and a different way of which they, they go about life. Maybe it's different. I'm not talking about holiness issues. I'm just talking about they're, just, they're different. Show kindness to them. Show love to them. Show care for them. It's a pretty easy thing to do, really, isn't it? If you listen to the world on how to deal with race, good luck. That is messed up. The, the world does not know what to do with this race issue. They really don't. But we do. We love people. We love all people. And we show kindness to all people. That's what you do. So this is what, how Jesus, he broke a um, uh, kind of a, well, he stepped into the social rituals of the day. And he goes, let me, let, me, let me tell you how you really ought to do this. So we can take that principle in our social rituals and just turn it on its head. And now you can have dinner like Jesus. And he has invited you. And so certainly all of us can be inviting others. In verse 15, some, somebody step, you know, kind of you know, chimes in. It's like, oh, the kingdom. So in verses 15 through 24, we're going to see that God doesn't accept our lame excuses. So it's kind of been, it's a parable, but it's leading somewhere, right? Now, when one of those who sat at the table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is he who shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. Then he said to them, A certain man gave a great supper and invited many, and sent his servant at supper time to say to those who were invited, Come, for all things are now ready. But they all with one accord began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a piece of ground, and I must go and see it. I ask you to have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm going to test them. I ask you to have me excused. Still another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So that servant came and reported these things to his master. And then the master of the house, being angry, said to his servant, Go out quickly into the streets and lanes of the city, and bring in here the poor and the maimed, the lame and the blind. So you see, he's like, all right, we're talking about the kingdom now. This is what the Lord is doing. And the servant said, Master, it is done as you commanded, and there is still room. Then the master said to the servant, Go into the highways and the hedges and compel them to come in, that my house may be filled. 
For I say to you that none of these who are invited shall taste my supper. So now we're talking about a, a, a feast that's symbolic of what the Lord is, wanted to do with the nation of Israel. Um, the Jewish people pictured the future kingdom. And what has Jesus been saying? Repent for what? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so they pictured the future kingdom as a great feast with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the prophets as the honored guests. This is something, this is the, the concept they had, is that when the Messiah comes and when he establishes the kingdom, there's going to be this great feast. Now Jesus is not denying that there's a feast, but this is their view. And so that's what, in verse 15, the person's like, oh, wow. You know, we're going to be able to eat bread in the kingdom of God. And so Jesus takes the opportunity to talk about the really lame excuses that people give for not wanting to be a part of the kingdom. And they were the ones making the lame excuses. <laughs> it's those that are in the room that are making the lame excuses of why they don't want to be a part of what the Lord is doing. Can you imagine being invited by Jesus to come to an event and then to come up with your lame excuse of why you didn't and then to miss out on it? And yet that is what was going on. The nation was rejecting Jesus Christ. He's offering the kingdom, but they don't want anything to do with him. You know, the wedding feast, um, when they are invited, this isn't like the first time they got the invitation. So what would often happen in the culture is, hey, we're going to have a, my, my daughter, uh, my son is uh, betrothed. We are going to have a... Uh, a wedding, and it's in, it's in the future. And then they would come when it was about to happen, and then and everybody kind of had a sense of the time, and they didn't know the exact day, but they had a sense. And then the, you would go out, you would re-invite everybody, let them know, all right, now the, the wedding feast is about to start. And so it's inexcusable that these who have agreed to come already, because they're being told it's now time, that they have no place for. So it, this would have been seen as like, not like, oh, well, my schedule doesn't fit. When they heard Jesus give these three examples, they would have been like, mm, 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 that is so rude. Who would do a thing like that? It, it, it would have been immediately obvious to them that this was a rude and silly excuse for not coming. Are you going to go test your oxen? What? I mean, you tested the oxen. First of all, the feast is at nighttime. You're not going to be out in the field testing your oxen at night, are you? And you bought, you know, 10 oxen and you haven't even looked at them? You, you bought a piece of land and you're going to go look at it at night? Who buys a piece of land without even looking at it? And so these were excuses that were dodging. They weren't excuses that were legitimate. And so they would have all quickly identified this. And so it was a rude, it was an insulting thing that had taken place. But you know, what Jesus is talking about is happening like right, right now. They are rejecting him. They are not receiving him. And so um, the leaders of the country, those people that were kind of a part of that, I mean, that expected class that would have been uh, a part of the feast. He says, oh, these want nothing to do with me. Well, go get the other people. Go get the rest of the people. Says, well, we did that, and there's still a ton of room. He said, right, well, then go out in the highways and byways. And that would be, although you can't say it definitively, I think what he's saying is, go get the Gentiles. Israel doesn't want anything to do with me. The leaders want nothing to do with me. Okay. Then, then go to the common person. They're, they're not really so interested in it either. Well, then go into the highways and byways. Go get the Gentiles. And man, the Gentiles have come, haven't they? Now, now listen, we should pray for those that are um, uh, Jews they're, uh, that have come and they don't know that, that Jesus is Lord and Savior, that he is their Messiah. We need to pray for them to come to that. But what has happened in the last 2,000 years is People have come out of the highways. You are a highway or in a byway person, most likely. I realize there are some of you that are, that are Jews that um, are, put your faith and trust in Jesus. And so you are a complete Jew, right? You, you fully understand who your Messiah is. You're in the minority. 
and you know this. I'm sure you have family that doesn't. So this is what's happening. This is a picture of how Jesus is actively being rejected and how Jesus is going to keep going until he finds those that are interested. And to, much to my delight, he wanted to go into the highways and byways because he found this Gentile guy. And um, I am thrilled to be a part of the kingdom and what the Lord is going to establish. Um, this happens in a few short years after Jesus' ascends, namely in Acts chapter 8 when the Samaritans are brought in, and then in Acts chapter 10 when Cornelius and the Gentiles are there and they are brought in, and then in full force in chapter 13 of Acts when uh, the Holy Spirit says, Separate unto me Paul and Barnabas for the work that I've called them to, and then they are launched out into world missions and they go out to the outside of Israel, they go to, um, well, what would be modern Turkey today and even into parts of Eastern Europe. And, and he began to call and they came. Excuses are given for not attending the wedding feast. Do you have an excuse for why you haven't come to Jesus? I realize you're at church on a Wednesday night or maybe you're listening on the radio here. But do you, have you come to Jesus? Have you come to his invitation to be a part of a kingdom that he is establishing that's going to be glorious and wonderful, full of beauty and truth, where there is justice, where there is peace. Man, he is inviting you to come. Why would you not come? In the book of Acts, Drusilla and Felix heard Paul preach the gospel to them, and they came under conviction, and they refused to bend their knee because it said they wanted a more convenient time. It's not convenient for me right now to come to Jesus. I believe what you're saying is true, but you see, I've got some oxen. I just got married. I got to go check out some land. I'm ruling and I'm a powerful person. I, I'm not ready to give all of this up. Felix and Drusilla says something like this. And, um, you know, Felix, uh, there's no record that he ever came to faith and that I think he actually was exiled and Drusilla um, died in a volcanic eruption. And again, no, no evidence that they ever came to faith. The convenient time never came. And so when, the, when you sense the Spirit of the Lord, Jesus calling you and saying, hey, come to me, be a part of the kingdom, come and sit at the table with me, and you begin to give your lame excuses, understand that Jesus is not obligated to give you tomorrow. He's not obligated to give you tomorrow to get it right with him. As a matter of fact, let me see here, back up. Yeah, at the end, in verse 24, once the house gets filled up, verse 24 says, For I say to you that none of these who were invited shall taste my supper. So in other words, lock the door. That, you know, you have an opportunity and you're given this lifetime to get it right with the Lord, but you don't even know that you have the next day to get it right with the Lord. So if you hear the voice of the Lord saying, come unto me, you need to go. So the invitation has gone out. They were rejected. And so the invitation goes to another. Don't allow your lame excuses because that's all they really are. Lame excuses to keep you from eternal life and being with the Lord. An invitation does not ensure someone a place in the kingdom of God, does it? The invitation was real. It was legitimate. It wasn't just window, theological window dressing. It was a real invite by Jesus. And those invites are still going out today is to come to him. But the invite does not ensure a person that they're going to have a place at the table. You must respond to that invitation. And I know that drives my Calvinistic friends crazy. However, John 5.40 says, You are not willing to come to me that you may have life. You must enact your own will and respond to the love and the grace of God to the invitation. And if you haven't, do it tonight. If you're waiting for the more convenient time, it's today. Today is the day of salvation. So, Jesus kind of takes an everyday circumstance, situation, and he kind of builds upon it. Verse 25 um, through 27, Jesus teaches what is required to be one of his disciples. So, I mean, these people didn't want anything to do with him. So in verse 25, he says, Now great multitudes went 
with him. And he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. I know some of you are like, what, what did he just say? It's, it's, yes, I didn't make it up. It's Luke 14, verses 25 through 27. Those are the words of Jesus. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. I invited you and you didn't want to come. But you get, when you come, you've got to come in the way that I tell you to come. You can't come any way that you want to. So he teaches the crowd how to come and be his disciple. Well, the first thing that we see in verse, 21, uh, verse 26 is that Jesus must be your number one relationship. No other relationship should rival the relationship that you have with Jesus because those relationships can often keep you from following. Now, sometimes you are in a relationship and that person is encouraging you to follow Jesus and run and go after him with your whole heart. But many times, a mother, a father, a brother, or a sister, or even children, can keep you from answering and following the Lord's call upon your life. Now, we struggle with this thing where it says that, you know, um, the word hate. And I guess in one sense, we ought to. However, just understand this. Um, that Jesus is not speaking about um, having ill feelings towards somebody. This is a, 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 a idiomatic expression for choosing and prioritizing in your life. And so the words love and hate are used. So it's a way to do this. Now, Jesus, in other places, um, uh, taught his disciples not to hate. So he's not undoing his teaching here, but he is using uh, a well-known Hebraic idiom to express that of preference. He's saying, I must be the number one relationship in your life. And if any relationship in your life would keep you from following me, then you're not worthy to be my disciple. That's hard, isn't it? That is hard. And so we have so many today that's like, well, you know, I know what Jesus said, but I really want to do this. It's like, how does that fit into his terms of discipleship? Jesus said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things that I tell you? So there is strong teaching from Jesus that a disciple, a follower of his, is one that has him as the number one priority in your life. And if... He's not calling you to hate in the sense of, oh, I hate you. He's calling you to say, let me be number one in your life. Don't allow any other relationship to have more meaning. Therefore, whatever I say, whatever I tell you to do, if it causes a conflict with, between you and another person, then I win. And if you're not willing to have, let me have that kind of priority in your life, then you are not worthy to be a disciple of mine. You cannot be my disciple. He's not like, well, you know, you can't be my disciple, but I'm willing to hear what you have to say. No, he does. he's not offering this. This is not negotiation time. He just says, you can't be my disciple. You have to be all in. The other thing that he says in verse uh, 27, as in whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Jesus must be your number one priority. So he must be your number one relationship, but he also must be your number one priority in terms of of things and, and well-being, and he even talks about loving your own life. Um, Jesus should have that number one place so that wherever he calls us to go, whatever he would call us to do, that we would follow. Now again, to carry one's cross, Jesus has not gone to the cross yet, so they're not thinking about Jesus on the cross. All they're thinking about is some countryman of theirs who was a robber or an insurrectionist. They got caught by Rome and was nailed up on a, uh, a cross and suffered and died. So this was a, a familiar phrase. It meant suffering. It meant dying. He says, if you want to follow me, you can't be putting yourself in front, it, I must be the number one priority 
in your life. You must be prepared to endure severe suffering, even to the point of death. In John chapter 12, it says, if you, if you want to save your life, you're going to lose it. But if you lose your life for my sake, you'll find it. So this idea that we as Christians would have a self-preservation mentality is foreign to Jesus. What in Jesus' character and life of 33 years was concerned about self-preservation? I did not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life a ransom for many. What's that? I came to die for you so that I could buy you out of the slave market of sin. And so if you want to be my disciple, you can't love your life either. And when we begin to love our life, our comforts, our relationships, our, you know, our finances, whatever it is, our way of doing things, our mentality, um, even those things that, you know, we have this interesting relationship. They are trouble our life. They, they make our life miserable. The bitterness we hang on to, the anxiety we, we're unwilling to turn over to the Lord. And we walk and he's, he's like, no, I want all of those things. Give them all to me. And we struggle to turn them over to him. But Jesus says, if you're unwilling to bear your cross and come after me, you can't be my disciple. Two strong statements. If you love other relationships more than me, you can't be mine. If you have other priorities in your life, then you can't be my disciple. Jesus wants people that are willing to be all in for him. 100%. Those are his words. And I think it's worth noting that the terms of discipleship are not negotiable. You can't negotiate with the Lord on this. Those who do not come to him agreeing to the, those terms are not permitted to even enter into discipleship. Jesus is not a salesman that's willing to kind of go to rock bottom price just so he can make certain that he gets the inventory moving. Jesus doesn't have the end of the month sale, okay? There's no year-end clearance on discipleship. He's not desperate. He's not up there wringing his hands saying, oh my, oh my, they are not coming the way we thought, Father. No, he's not doing that. You know, maybe you ought to lower the standards a little bit. Maybe we should, you know, take back part of their Bible. I mean, we could just like evaporate chapter 14 if we need to. It'll freak them out a little bit, but, you know, it'll be an opportunity. We could do that. The Lord's not up there wringing his hands. The, the terms of discipleship are the same today as they were back then. And you and I are privileged to come and follow the king. And to follow one that laid down his life for us. Who cared for people. Who was a radical confronting the establishment that was trampling people. We are privileged to follow him. And Jesus said in other places, if you're embarrassed about me, I'm going to be embarrassed about you. Strong words from the Lord. Verses 28 through 33 he says, for, so he's going to give a couple of parables here. For which of you intending to build a tower does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it? So you've heard of the cost of discipleship. It comes from this, this idea. What's the cost of being my disciple? Well, let's talk about something else. What's it, what does it cost uh, to build a tower? Make sure you have enough. Verse 29, lest after he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. So he says, if you're going to build a tower, know how much it's going to cost so you can finish it. If you want to be my disciple, my disciple know what it costs and don't look ridiculous because you bail out partway through. This is what it costs to follow me. Verse 31, or what king going to make war against another king does not sit down first and consider what he is able uh, whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. Or else while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks conditions of peace. So here it is. What's the point of these things? two things? So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. That's what you got to evaluate. 
forsake how much? All. Everything. You want to be mine? Give it all up. Oh, yeah, but I'm a rich guy. Go give it to the poor. Mm, can't do that. Okay. I mean, th these are the things that Jesus said when he saw a person that was being held up in some way from being a disciple. He was bold and he called them to discipleship. If you want to follow Jesus, count the cost. What's the cost? You give up everything. But when you give up everything, you gain eternal life. You gain life during life. And you gain a relationship with the Lord. You will gain a life that has never been more right or blessed. And so this is the cost of discipleship. We close here in verses 34 and 35. And I've just called this, Beware of Useless Discipleship. Context kind of sets the, the tone for how we should understand this illustration he gives about salt. He says, salt is good, but if the salt has lost its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? Or yeah, how shall it be seasoned? It is neither fit for the land nor for the dunghill, but men throw it out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So based on the context, what he's saying is, don't be useless. Don't be a useless disciple. Have an ear to hear what I'm saying. You've got to forsake all. Count the costs. I'm not negotiating with you. And mama can't have more priority in your life than me. And neither can your children. You know, people say, well, you know, that's great that they're going to be missionaries, but I can never do that. I love my family too much to do that. Okay, first of all, do you think the missionaries don't love their family? I mean, maybe you should never say that out loud again, okay? So, so you're saying that, but if Jesus said go, you wouldn't go? What if... Jesus told us all to get up and go. What if he said COVID-19 has been detrimental to world missions? The gospel has never had a lower uh, ascending rate in, in you know, the last couple of centuries. We have got to go. The church has got to get up and go. And you knew, it's not just me calling you to it. You knew that the Spirit of God said go. What would keep you from going right now this second and going? I got a house. No, I want you to go now. Yeah, but I've, you know, I've got money in that house. I've got things in that house. You know, the Lord, I, I only use that illustration to, to, to help you look at your heart and see, are you really surrendered? Is Troy really surrendered? Am I really ready to get up and go? I jokingly will say, Lord, I'm so glad that you asked me to plant a church once. <laughs> once. Lord, I'm, I've, I love the fact that I did it once. I don't, I'm not really interested in twice. I'm glad that you called me to do it once. But here's the, the bottom line. And Rebecca is right there with me. If the Lord told us to get up and go, we'd get up and go. We love you, but we love Jesus more. And we would follow him and we would do that. We would go where he would have us to go. Now, we feel like we're supposed to be here. So we're, it's not an announcement time. I'm just saying... <laughs> We think about this same question. You think about it. Well, I got schooling to finish. No, you don't. Not if Jesus says you're out. I mean, so if Jesus says you're out of school, but you decide to stay in school, what are you going to do with that education? If the king is going to thwart every plan you have with it, is it really a wise thing to do? The best thing to do when Jesus speaks is just simply say, yes, Lord. Lord means what? Master. Which makes us slaves. We say yes, Lord, we'll go. And so beware of being useless in discipleship like salt that has lost its flavor. You know, you got to admire Jesus for the way in he, which he just says the hard thing. And you know what? Some didn't want it and they rejected him, but multitudes followed him too, right? Because they wanted to hear it. And when we think that we've got to water down the message of the gospel and the call to follow Jesus, otherwise people won't accept it. First of all, we're, we're dishonoring the words of the Lord. And secondly, we fail to understand what people want. 
have you noticed the world we live in right now? We have, do we have a lot of mild and meek-minded thinking people that just are willing to have their thoughts and kind of hold them to themselves and, you know, willing to accommodate every? Is that the world we live in? No, we live in a world where it's like, it's my way or it's the highway. We're done. If you don't agree with me, we're going to deplatform you. We're going to counsel you. I'm not going to be your friend. I'm not coming to your parties. I'm not going to have anything to do with you because they're radical for what they believe in. You, they're wrong. But the world, you will have to give them this. They are radical for what they believe in. And if we think that with, we can win a radical world that's full on for their cause with a half-hearted message, we're deceiving ourselves. They're not going to come to that. Why would a radical want a milquetoast message? So you know what? Jesus was a radical. And he comes with a radical message. He's like, here's the deal. You want to follow me? You better make me number one priority your mama, your daddy, your kids, nobody can be more important. I don't want to hear about your farms and your families. I want you to follow me. Now, here's the thing. When you follow Jesus, your family's never going to be more blessed. Your, your family's never going to be more um, set up to, to have a great relationship with you than you as a woman or a man that is spirit-filled following the Lord. There is no fear in following Jesus. What should scare us to death is to think that he has spoken and we're holding back. Last verse, First Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you, not, uh, do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you are disqualified? It is important for us to test our hearts. And what better to test our hearts and discipleship within Jesus' words of what it means to follow him. Father, we thank you that you are bold and you call us to full-on discipleship. Lord, may you search all of our hearts with your words. May you show us those parts of our life where maybe we're just, we're getting soft. We're getting lazy. Lord, we want to follow you wholeheartedly to the very end. We don't want to Love life and preserve life and extend life and not obey you. May we understand that the greatest thing ever is to follow you. And Lord, you've told us, you said that if we follow you, the world's going to hate us because we're not greater than you. And if they hated you, they would hate us. So Lord, whatever delusion we may have of what it means to be a disciple or how we ought to be received by the world. May your word just come and wash us clean. And may we hear your voice afresh.